Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and joining me on today's show is Emmett and Mike from my Wall Street investing team. Today, we're talking about Under Armour's big comeback, if Neo is really the Chinese Tesla or not, and we figure out what has happened to Teladoc over the past few months. So some exciting news to start off today's podcast with. So from today, the Stock Club podcast is now moving to weekly episodes. That means that every Friday, you'll now be able to listen to our dulcet tones as we talk about the most important stories in the market and give our perspective on them. We also want you to have more of a say in what you hear on the Stock Club podcast. So from now on, we're introducing a new mailbag segment towards the end of each episode. In this segment, we'll delve into our virtual mailbag and tackle some of the questions, comments, or even elevator pitches that you send in to us. So if there's something stock market related that you'd like to my Wall Street analyst team's opinion on. Make sure to get in touch with us via our socials or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. Emmett, Mike, are you guys excited about moving to weekly episodes? Well, I'm pretty sure for me and you, James, the fact that we're doing twice as many podcasts means we get paid twice as much. So Yeah, I think that's the way it works, Emmett, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> letters in the post, yeah. <laughs> You can tell you can you can clearly tell that Emmett is not CEO anymore and is now the chairman because he's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> not my business. <laughs> any any more, any anything else you want to stick in there, Mike? Any other benefits we want to elbow in? Uh, Put it on uniforms. public records. <laughs> uniforms. Yeah. Podcast bowling jerseys or something, maybe. Yeah, four day work weeks. Four day work weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, good one. <laughs> if, if any of our listeners have any benefits they'd like us to see as well send them yeah. in we'll, we'll, we'll see how much we can cram in here uh, let's move on then and talk about the first story on today's podcast which is Under Armour so I think out of all the stocks on the My Wall Street shortlist Under Armour is probably the one we have the biggest love-hate relationship with it was once a darling of My Wall Street but it suffered a bit of an implosion about five years ago due to a litany of issues including a diminished brand amongst younger audiences and various degrees of mismanagement everything I think from just kind of misdirection to reports of company expenses being charged to lap dancing clubs which uh, we probably won't get into here so the stock price has hit a gutter recently it was down some 85 percent from all-time highs but over the past few months there's been a bit of a turnaround going on at under armor it helped in no small part by the new ceo patrick frisk in the most recent earnings report the company reported sales growth of 91 percent north american sales growth of 101 percent and direct consumer revenue of 52 percent and more than a third of this came through e-commerce channels under Armour's stock has reacted in kind, spiking over 15% after the call. And in fact, the company's share price is now up close to half since the start of the year. Emmett, you've been a long-time shareholder in Under Armour. Is this the beginning of a turnaround we've all been waiting for over at the company? Yeah, and I was a long-time shareholder of Under Armour, okay. and I don't hold the shares anymore. And in fact, just before we went live, I checked my brokerage account, which tells me I first bought shares in the company very soon after its IPO, uh, specifically at 15.46 in the day on the 25th of October 2007. I bought 110 shares in Under Armour for $56.80. And before I get to your question, I suppose... I just like just comment on that single purchase because since that time, Under Armour has split 
two to one three times. Yeah. So the effective purchase price that I had back in October 2007 was $7. So in today's money, if you like, it was $7 a share. But it was down 80% from that buy price to an all-time low about a year and a half after my first purchase. And despite that, today, that initial purchase of seven bucks a share would be up 450%. Wow. Which is, I suppose, just another anecdote to support a very simple strategy to never sell anything. And I think a lot of our listeners know that I had my every purchase I ever made analyzed and the vast, vast, vast majority of purchases that I make fall in value after I do so. So anyway, just an aside. It's and, a bit of a I punch sp- in the gut, though, just a year after <laughs> buying it down 80%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. It hurts. And I mean, it's still, I, look, that still continues today. I bought Metro Mile not too long ago and it is really so at the moment and I'm actually quite interested but anyway that's another story so today Under Armour is a 10.8 billion dollar business and it's uh, currently profitable but I, I think what we need to do James before we put a spotlight on the now is we have to address the elephant in the room that nobody ever talks about and that is Under Armour uses the British rather than the American spelling and I think yeah. we need to explain to our... I think that's the real question. This is our the hard-hitting hard journalism. This yeah. is the hard-hitting. Now we need to get under the... We're going to get under the cover of Under Armour. We'll eventually answer your question, James. But we really need to start with the the, the things that are front of mind for our listeners. And it's, it's strange because Kevin Plank, who was the founder of Under Armour, is an American citizen. And you would think he'd go with the American spelling. But while doing my research, it turns out that Plank winded up choosing the British spelling because what he wanted was a toll-free vanity number for Under Armour. And Under A-R-M-O-R was not available at the time. So for one of those kind of dial now 1-800 numbers or whatever, you know, he went with the British spelling and now he has a, sorry, it is an international brand um, all because of a toll-free number. So but anyway, is that a bull or a bear case? I can't tell. <laughs> um, I like that kind of innovative approach, that pure entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> Actually, speaking of which, so it was founded by, as I mentioned, Kevin Plank when he was 24 years old in and around 1996. And at, he had just... He'd been a sports person and he was the captain of, uh, of the University of Maryland's football team. So he did have insights to the shortcomings of athletic apparel to sports people at that time. And the story goes that he he began the business from his grandmother's basement in D.C., Washington, D.C., and then spent a whole lot of time traveling along the East Coast with the trunk or the boot, as we say over here, of his car full to the brim with with Under Armour gear. Yeah. And he his first sale was like a $17,000 worth of merchandise. And I, when I was reading this, I thought, this sounds like a Will Ferrell role to me. You know, shedding <laughs> up for a sandwich from his grandma's basement as he's making t-shirts. Anyway, the story of Under Armour kicks off with Kevin Plank selling 17 grand's worth of sports apparel that he allegedly designed in his grandma's basement. And from that year and every year thereafter, sales increased. And in 2005, the top line revenue was like $280 million. It grew, grew, grew right up through to the year 2019, where it had done about 5.2 billion in top line sales. So it, it was a story of growth. But however, like it struggled, the company got hit hard in the year 2020. And, and in the year 
the coronavirus year, revenue fell about 15% from the year before and uh, was hit with a huge bottom line loss of about $550 million. So I'm getting to your question. (laughs) So the 2021 goal of Under Armour is to get its business back to where it was previously. In other words, get it back to where it was in 2019, a revenue figure of around $5.2 billion. And the company breaks even at about $4.7 billion in revenue. So the target for this year is to get back to profit, bring it back to where it was in 2019. And I think that the share price we're seeing now is very reflective of the initiatives they've put in place to get back there. But I, I'm not excited. So, I mean, like as sports apparel companies go, UA has tried to differentiate and actually has differentiated very successfully over the years by going to niches of sports apparel that other players weren't making gear for, like cleats and moisture wicking tops and that kind of stuff. But in more recent years, it was connected fitness and specifically their running shoes or sneakers as they're called in America or runners as they're called in Ireland that connect to the Map My Run app, which clearly is the winner from their their wheelhouse of apps. I mean, a case in point, like last October, I think Under Armour said they were going to sell my fitness pal to yeah. an investment firm in San Francisco for like $350 million. And only five and a half years earlier, they'd bought it for $475 million. So they were filling their trophy cabinet with, with connected fitness products, but they have now put it down to this Map My Run product. And where they are going as a business is far, far more competitive than it ever was. And for me, Under Armour is a story of a challenger brand in the early days. When I bought shares, what I what appealed to me about Under Armour when I bought it on, let me just check in when I say 25th of October 2007, was that it was challenging the giants of the sporting world, Adidas and Nike. But now they are they were the brand that nobody's dad or mom wore right? Yeah. Whereas Nike mm-hmm. was, but now they are like, yeah. I, I, in 2007, I was 14 years ago. I, I wasn't a father and I liked that kind of, it isn't the brand my dad wore. Now I'm a dad and I yeah. wear Under Armour. So <laughs> it has actually gone to full circle. So the, the kind of coolness of the brand, um, you know, it has eroded a bit. You and, know, and that's, uh, that's something that's plagued Under Armour for quite a while. It's been one of their, yeah. their biggest problems, I think for the past five years or so. Mike, h- how does a company, you know, with, with a thing like branding and, and brand perception, amongst consumers how does a company tackle that it's such a i suppose an an intangible problem to fix yeah i think the best example of this was apple bringing out the apple stores um where they were able to kind of completely customize the customer experience and kind of you've seen what apple stores are like they're different they have apple export experts instead of cashiers and they're almost a shrine to this product Mm. and in Under Armour space, I think the best example of this and the greatest success that came from this is what Lululemon has done in the last couple yeah. of years. So you can only buy new Lululemon clothing from them, either online or in store. So they can maintain both their brand and pricing power and won't be found in the bargain bin at Dick's Sporting Goods, which was yeah. kind of the big issue that Under Armour ran into. And then from there, you can see how much of a success it was with how the stock has performed. It's a $50 billion company that's selling yoga pants, you know? Yeah, like, that's exactly, no yeah. joke. Like, I think yeah, if you invested two years ago, you'd have 5x your starting sum, you know? Yeah. 
I, and, and and considering how much Lululemon sell their products for too, you know, like not not that I'm their, their key market, but you know those yoga pants go for well over hundred dollars. I think hundred dollars is probably uh, the the base of the the pricing there. Absolutely, and I'm sure an expert would tell you that there is a difference, but I think it's more so the perception and the yeah. mystique they've created around the brand that has mm. really forced that compared yeah. to where Under Armour lost control of their resellers. And you've seen Nike now are doing it too. Uh, they took themselves off Amazon. So like ensuring that, and you've seen the improvements from the direct-to-consumer segment, Yeah, ensuring that they can control the customer experience more, I think would be key to continued success for Under Armour. Mm. Absolutely. Emmett, you spoke a, a bit there about Kevin Plank as founder, and obviously he stepped down a couple of years ago. Patrick Frisk stepped in. You know, one of the things we often talk about when we're looking for an investment is a is a you know an inspiring founding CEO and the importance of that. But with other companies in our showroom, notably Chipotle Mexican Grill, it wasn't until the founder stepped aside that the company actually started experiencing success again. Mm. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? At at what point, I suppose, do we like to see a founder step away and let somebody else in to take the reins? On occasion, they need to get out of their own way. And usually, like, so Steve Ells, I think, was the name of the founder of Chipotle Mexican Grill. Yeah. It was a, a business I invested in very early as well. And and there comes a point where you're learning on the job. When you're a founding entrepreneur, you're learning as you go. You've generally, you might have a mentor, but you are doing something that in your life you've never done before. And there comes a point where a business is big. You've managed to get the plane as it were at 40,000 feet and you need somebody who can help get that plane higher or further and it isn't always the Steve Jobs story like where the the story was conceived or began in in a garage in, in his house and ended up the biggest company in the world when he eventually passed away and that isn't always the story so I think in, we like to see CEOs who have brought a business from concept from a PowerPoint presentation through to a multi-multi-billion dollar business and still have grown adequately in the role that they can continue to innovate and keep that startup culture and spirit of challenge and all the things that go with it and the reason we like it is that a founder doesn't really care about her or his or their pay packet. It's not yeah. about the salary. They're no yeah. longer motivated in the vast, vast majority of cases by what, in fact, they're paid or how they're rewarded. They, they've they kind of come to terms with the fact that you only live once and they have all they need and they are out to do something beyond extraordinary. And it's very hard to get a hired CEO who actually has this uh, spirit that this is going, this has to endure for a hundred years. I'm out to build something that's going to be around so much longer than me. However, we do sometimes see CEOs, founding CEOs getting in their own way. Uh, There were stories about Kevin Plank. I'm not going to regale here, but they weren't great. And Steve Ells, I just think, didn't have the skills if you like or the experience just to run a multinational corporate yeah mm. and i suppose it's it definitely mm. is a different set of skills you know mm. to, to found one or two stores or to found a product and then bring it to that you know multinational level and you know when you look at patrick frisk like he was the the head of the north face before timberland the aldo group he has that experience he's, he's, he appears to be i suppose much more of an operator that maybe is exactly what Under Armour need right now. I'm also conscious that Anne-Marie, who's usually on this podcast, has actually made a bull case for 
Ar- Under Armour uh, quite frequently. So I think we, we need to move on and let Anne-Marie have her, she, her chance she, to add into be, this in the next episode. She'll be writing episode. in for the next week's mailbag. Which... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this question comes in from Anne-Marie. <laughs> yeah. so let's move on then and chat about another company that we actually get asked quite frequently about. So on the last episode of the Stock of the Month podcast, Rory and I talked about how so many companies are called the Amazon or the Netflix or something. So for example, how iQui is called Netflix of China. Well, the next company we're going to talk about is most frequently called the Tesla of China. And of course, I'm talking about NIO, the Chinese EV maker that has seen its stock balloon over the past couple of years, much like its American counterpart. The company hit the headlines again recently after reporting a strong quarter with losses narrowing, revenue surging almost 130% and its vehicle deliveries coming in on target, which is a pretty rare feat in the world of EVs. We all know Emmett. I know you've been keeping an eye on NIO for a while. What are your thoughts on the company as an investment, especially considering how much of a run its stock price has been? Mm. on over the past few years but you you hit the, the nail on the head it's been on one hell of a run and i do think calling it the chinese tesla is very very justified i know that that okay uh, kind of comparison runs a little thin with certain companies like kiwi is not really the netflix of china but it allows us to get a grasp of approximately what they're doing quickly but neo in my mind very much is the tesla of of china and just to for our listeners perspective so neo in October 2019, which was really only yesterday, was selling for about a buck fifty a share. It is today thirty eight dollars a share. Wow! Uh, so it has really had a heck of a run, and its if, market uh, cap. If yeah, Jamie, if if Jamie is listening to this podcast, I remember he was writing at a, writing about Neo at about two dollars a share and never bought. So. <laughs> oh. That's oh, why we hurts. don't let Jamie on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jamie, don't worry. I know that feeling. It hurts. I have an absolute graveyard of misses. But anyway, um, so Neo is a is a sixty two billion dollar business. It's a big company, which is Tesla. Just to put in perspective, is a six hundred and sixty billion dollar business. So Tesla is at least 10, 11x the size of Neo yeah. from a market cap perspective. And just so Jamie doesn't get too upset, in and around the same time as Neo was selling for about a buck fifty a share, Tesla was selling about for about 40 bucks a share. And it's now 665 or so dollars a share. So the electric car industry has had a heck of a run. And Neo is to my mind emerging as one of the many, many electric car vehicle companies, rather, that is a true challenger in okay. waiting or in preparation or on the sideline to Tesla. And and as you, you said, they, they recently reported. And frankly, when you have to look at a bigger picture, we can dive into report. They, they reported a loss of seven cents a share, revenue of about $1.3 billion, which represents big growth, like 127% growth over the year ago period. And they delivered 22,000 vehicles. And you can kind of put a spotlight on what the business did in a 12-week period, but it completely is the wrong way to assess one of these businesses. So they, they're also, when we look at the bigger picture, working on expanding this innovative battery as a service or battery swap network. They currently have 361 battery swap stations. They plan to get to 700 by the end of this year. But by 2025, Neo aims to go global with a technology battery as a service with 4,000 stations where you drive in and swap out the dead battery for a fully charged battery and and that is quite innovative but but where i am getting excited about neo is down to the fact that they are now looking beyond the shores of china and they have started to 
deliver vehicles to Norway, which I think anyone who's familiar with the electric car market knows that the concentration of Tesla ownership in Norway is the highest in the world. It was the first yeah. European market they went into, etc. So they recently started shipping to Norway. But what's more interesting and exciting about Neo's future is that they are now going the Tesla strategy, which was from a Model S to the Model 3. They're doing their equivalent. They're going from that very premium vehicle down to an entry-level vehicle. And the CEO of Neo, uh, William Lee, said, quote, the relationship between Neo and our new mass market brand will be like that of Audi, Volkswagen and Lexus, Toyota. So I think comparisons to Tesla in this particular instance are absolutely justified from a strategic yeah. perspective and also from a total addressable market standpoint. And and just before I shut up, like there's there, there's a couple of other comparisons that you can you know, you can take with Neo versus Tesla. And that's, you know, this, they are currently valued, Neo are currently valued at around six times 2022's expected revenue. Okay. Yeah. Tesla is currently valued at 10x 2022's expected revenue. And Neo is growing way faster. So yeah. it has apparently 68% expected revenue growth for 2022 versus 36% for Tesla. So we have a business that is growing faster than Tesla, but it's valued at a lower multiple. So yes, I'm very interested in the company at this point. And, you know, equally while comparing it to Tesla's logical, if you put Neo beside Ford, who ships something like one and a half to two million cars per quarter, it feels odd that the Chinese upstart is worth $10 billion more than Ford. Yeah. So really the, the frame of reference has to be changed. And, 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 the re, and I promise I'm going to shut up now, but, but what's <laughs> actually happening, and it's in front of our eyes in the car market, is that there, it's going to descend into a battle of three decision points when you take away price. It's going yeah. to be a battle because all cars will be electric at the very least or to be completely sustainable that's the way it's going so it's going to be a battle of three dimensions when you go to buy the aesthetic the software and the services offered so in mm. other words do you like the look and shape of it and the color it's the aesthetic is the self-drive software and the the, the the interface inside the car intuitive and cool and then finally, what other services are offered to me by my car maker? And these two final dimensions, which software and the services, are new dimensions in the buying process. So when you go into a car vendor where previously you felt a brand loyalty, you liked Ford, you liked the shape, you liked the price, you're now thinking, do I like the software and do I like yeah. the services? And everyone in the world who is on the market for a car in just a few years from now will be considering the operating system as it's known in mobile phones or in computers, which is the software, and they will consider what other things will you be doing for me as a service? Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, it kind of boils down to they look cheap when compared to Tesla, maybe expensive when compared to Ford. Yeah, and yeah. yeah it's just it's it's an entire new industry, I suppose, burgeoning inside the the wider motor industry. Mike, on the last episode of this podcast, we we spoke a bit about you know the risks involved in investing in Chinese companies, but Neo as a Chinese company is is benefiting from a lot of the, I suppose the regulations and and oversight from the Chinese government, especially in their battle against Tesla over there. Yeah, I'm delighted both of you called Neo the Tesla of China because you're both <laughs> you're both wrong. <laughs> Do you want to know what the Tesla of China is? What? Tesla. 
<laughs> well, that's true. That is Absolutely true. Absolutely oh. true. You're so you've been sitting there waiting <laughs> the whole sitting time. Sitting on that for ages. Letting them talk and talk just to say that. Yeah, uh, but no, it is true. The only foreign automaker to wholly own its operations in the country and not partner with this local supplier. And like Tesla has had the red carpet rolled out for it since it entered China. Yeah. But this is kind of, as you mentioned, James, wavering recently. So it's a great time to talk about Neo. I looked at the July delivery figures. So July, Tesla has been up above 20,000 for the past couple of months. In June, it delivered 8,621 cars locally to Chinese people. Li Auto delivered 8,589. Xpeng delivered 8,040. And Neo delivered 7,931. So Tesla's deliveries have fallen 69% from June's figures. It was the lowest domestic sales in the past 15 months. And it's clear to see that Tesla's fall was its rival's gain as well. We talked in the last part about like kind of the overarching control Chinese regulators have had on its tech companies. Uh, the concern would be that regulators can turn around and start making it more difficult for Tesla in the local market in order to give preferential treatment yeah. to local companies like Neo yeah. instead. Which would be pretty pretty annoying for Tesla considering they spent all that money build, building oh, the big gigafactory over second, there. Second biggest market in the world. So Tesla yeah. was forced to, by the government to recall 285,000 cars due to a software issue. There was a public outcry against the company uh, sparked by a protester who claimed she suffered from a brake malfunction. And uh, Tesla's have also been banned from certain government facilities for fear of sending data to yeah. the US. So it's kind of all shaping up to look like Tesla has fallen out of favor. And I don't know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of underlying socioeconomic factors here as well. And maybe Tesla were t- not taken advantage of per se, but used to elevate yeah. the industry until local competitors caught up. So there's an awful lot there. And yeah. what it does spell out is an opportunity for Neo as well. Yeah, and as you mentioned, massive, massive, second biggest EV market in the world, I think. And, and there's a lot of kind of, the government encourages um, is encouraging the market quite a lot. So yeah, definitely an interesting one and definitely one it sounds like our analyst team are keeping a close eye on. So so we might we might hear from more from Neo in the near future. Um, let's look have, take a quick look at some of the things going on around my Wall Street at the moment. So we just published a brand new stock on Monday. It's a company that's at the forefront of a new revolution in fintech and credit lending. As mentioned, we've also got August stock of the month live in the My Wall Street app right now. This month's pick has been a particularly good one, already up more than 10%, so good timing by Rory. Remember, you can choose to either read a report or you can listen to the Stock of the Month podcast in the My Wall Street app right now. Let's move on to the mailbag, though. So lots of questions in, lots of requests in, but the one thing I think we need to address first is a question we've been asked probably most frequently over the past few weeks, which is, what the hell is going on at Teladoc? Mike, stock's down more than 50% from its all-time highs. What's yeah, going we've on? seen the stock price cut in half, but uh, basically all of that incurred in the space of two weeks back at the end of February when the stock saw a major correction and fell about 40%. And it was yeah. kind of a perfect storm, really. So it fell around the Q4 2020 earnings where the company set guidance. And the big thing to come from this was it predicted, it was forecasting membership numbers to basically stay flat for 2021. And then yeah. around the same time, Amazon announced it was extending its telehealth service to other companies too. So there was kind of three factors really at play. There was guidance for slow growth in membership, Amazon entering any market, and then the kind of yeah. investor sentiment that, well, telehealth has seen a huge pull forward, which it had over the pandemic, mm. and these growth figures aren't going to be maintained. So. That yeah. saw the stock drop 40% in about two weeks. Yeah. So 
Looking at the new competitors, we mentioned Amazon already, but they're not the only ones. Amwell went public back in September. Him, Hims and Hers, which is a generic pharmaceutical and telehealth company, went public recently. And then just a couple of weeks ago, Doximity, which is another competitor with the telehealth brand, uh, telehealth arm, also entered the market. My opinion now, the threat of competitors, while very present, might be slightly overblown. Like the healthcare system, if it was easy to fix, it wouldn't be in the mess that it is. I think everyone remembers last year when Bezos, Buffett and uh, Jamie Dimon formed a little triumvirate to solve everything and almost instantly fell flat in its face. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they just like, screw this, (laughs) we're not getting involved. Like the Power Rangers teaming up and then they just fell apart. Yeah, um, (laughs) I don't think investors are given enough credit to the fact that Teladoc has been the pioneer of this industry for so long and kind of has years Mm -hmm. and years of operational excellence behind it. But is have you any concerns then over the Livongo merger? So they made that that a while ago, and is you know is there a few kind of worries about how well that's going? The integration. Yeah, so they said that Livongo and Teladoc had twenty five percent customer share, basically, or customer overlap, I should say. Yeah. So what they what they framed that as was, well, we have 75% of cross-selling and synergy opportunities. Um, I think we're yet to see, so the deal only closed in October. You know, I think we need to see a few more earnings reports before I can really comment on how they've merged properly. But in terms of yeah. what the Lavongo merger has made, Teladoc is instead of just a pure play telehealth company, it's kind of more fully rounded out healthcare company specializes in chronic care, specializes in mental health, all with telehealth kind of at the core. And I think yeah. seeing that company more developed and a less specific, like one trick pony, I think will yeah. f- will uh, pave the way for a lot of long-term gains. So no, ma- no major concerns about Teladoc. It's good to hear. As a shareholder <laughs> I think everyone in my Wall Street is <laughs> in the same boat there. <laughs> so that's it from this week's Stock Club. Remember, if you have any investing questions you want answered or elevator pitches you'd like our team to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or just simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're going over to our TikTok, unfortunately, we have no videos of Emmett doing any TikTok dances yet, but we are working on it. Uh, so if you're, I'm just saying yes. I'm agreeing. Yes, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club if you're enjoying it, and please leave a review for us too on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. That's it from us today. We'll talk to you next week for the first time. Happy investing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 